Good morning, Redemption. Uh, thank you, Ron, man. I'm going to be at your house next Saturday, Sabbathing it up with you. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Sounds really good. Well, in 1173, a city in Tuscany in central Italy, it began construction on a cathedral. Now, this cathedral would take over 200 years to complete. It was interrupted by wars and financial turmoil before it was eventually finished in the year 1399. For the course of this two centuries, however, of construction, the builders gradually began realizing a problem, which was that a portion of the church was slowly but surely leaning. Now, this is, of course, the famous Leaning Tower of Pisa, and the issue was that it had been built and constructed on ground that was soft. It was not firm enough or hard enough underneath to support the weight of this tower and this structure. This was actually a bell tower, and uh, they found that it was, uh, this bell tower for the cathedral was, was slowly tipping over at the rate of about half an inch per year. And over the 200 years, this became more and more and more. Now, the church as a whole was fine, uh, but the portion of the church that was not built upon a good foundation was at risk, was at jeopardy of toppling and crumbling over. And here's the thing about the Tower of Pisa, right? Like, it's interesting to look at, but it sucks to live in. <laughs> like, you can imagine living in this thing and trying to, like, eat dinner and keep your stuff from falling over or trying to sleep at night and, honey, stop rolling over the bed. I'm trying, I'm trying, you know? Trying to use the restroom, you know, hold yourself up. Like, it would not be a fun experience to live in the Tower of Pisa. And moral of the story is this. When a church is built on the wrong foundation, it sucks to live in. You want to be built on the right foundation. We're starting a new series today called Rebuilding. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And uh, Nehemiah is all about rebuilding. Now, uh, we're taking a break from the Gospel of John for two months, so we're going to jump back into John in August. Uh, we'll pick up our series where we left off then. But in the meantime, we're taking this two months to be in the series called Rebuilding. Uh, and I'm excited about this series because across redemption, so all congregations and redemption, we're all doing this together because as a lead team, as we were talking about this, as we were brainstorming, we, we just really felt like God put on our heart. This feels like a, a series for this season because Nehemiah is all about rebuilding on a good foundation. Now, Nehemiah was written to a people who it might be hard or difficult for you and I to relate with, but I want to try and describe their circumstances. And if you would use your imagination, even if this could be difficult, just try and use your imagination to put yourself in their shoes. Nehemiah is writing to a people who are coming out of a very painful season. Everything that was familiar has now been disrupted. Life as they had previously known it came to a screeching halt. Many in their older generation had passed away. Many of their children had started questioning the importance of their faith. They have gotten back to normal, but only a percentage of God's people have actually returned. Everywhere they look, things are not really as good as they used to be. They seem to be as good. Powerful forces are seeking to divide them, and they are a weak and small minority amidst a godless growing majority. And they're wondering what God has to say to them about their moment today. No, I'm not talking about America 2021. I'm talking about Jerusalem in 445 BC. 
I'm grateful to Luke Simmons, the pastor at Redemption Gateway, kind of shared those observations to me. I was like, man, that's striking because there is a lot that the people Nehemiah is responding to and writing to that, that he's writing this book. And as for people in a situation, that many ways can be like ours. And we want to go today, we want to start this series by asking, how do you rebuild a church in ruins? Now, I'm really grateful. I feel like we've got a great church, great body of Christ here, but even I'm thinking more even somewhat national as we look at the state of the church today, how do we as the people of God, how do we live faithfully and be rebuilders in a context that can often feel like the church seems to be toppling or leaning or falling apart around us? The title for the sermon this morning is Church in Ruins. Uh, maybe tell the person next to you, it may look bad, yeah, you guys are better than that. Come on. It may, be, it may look like it's fallen over. <laughs> but God is a rebuilder. That's right. God's our rebuilder. Let's jump in. Nehemiah 1. All right, Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, I think. I got ripped on last week by the reader. Hey, you read it wrong. I'm like, ah, you're probably right. So I'm doing my best. Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev. I think I got that one right now. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The first thing we see here is that See, the first step to rebuilding the church in ruins is you've got to assess the damage. You've got to assess the damage. And Nehemiah gets a report that is assessing the damage to Jerusalem, God's city, because God's city is in disrepair. Now, it's interesting to hear Nehemiah, he's not actually in Jerusalem. He is in Susa, one of the oldest cities in the world, Susa, the citadel, uh, which was at the heights of the Persian Empire. And this is where God's people are now in captivity. And so Nehemiah, he's actually doing all right. He's got a, a cushy government job working for the king in the high place. But he hears this report that's coming from God's people from Jerusalem uh, back in the homeland. And he hears that God's city is in disrepair. The walls are broken down and the reputation of the remnant is in shame. Now, on those walls broken down, a major theme we're going to see in Nehemiah is this uh, rallying cry for the people to build a wall, right? And that carries some resonances, some connotations today in our context that is not necessarily what they mean back there. So don't read into that. Don't impose that. That's not why we chose the series or anything like that, right? <laughs> but there is a reality that uh, I think a good way to think about it is something more like this. If you think about um, like the home, think about like God's house and the walls are crumbling and the yard is in disrepair and the whole thing looks like it's falling apart and there's graffiti and whatever on the side and the neighbors are all laughing and looking going, man, that guy, that God cannot take care of his house. That thing is falling apart in disrepair. It's kind of the picture here because Jerusalem was God's city. It was God's home. And the book of Nehemiah is actually originally, it was one book with Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we find in Ezra and Nehemiah is that the temple has been torn down. Uh, the walls are in disrepair. The city is a mess. And so different parts of the book, Ezra and Nehemiah detail these different parts of rebuilding God's home, of rebuilding the city. So that's the picture we should have in mind. The na nations, kind of like the neighbors, are looking in on God's home and going, man, it's in disrepair. It's falling apart. Your God kind of sucks, right? Like your God can't even keep his own house in order. That was probably not a good foundation, that God, for you guys to build your life upon. It's kind of the context here. 
Now, it's also interesting when we read in the Old Testament and we look at this theme of the walls of Jerusalem, the walls of the city, they're actually a motif and we see a lot of different things with them. Uh, One is that we find that in the Bible, the walls of Jerusalem, they are a sign of God's favor and of his protection for his people. We find that broken walls meant God's judgment and his absence. And we find that these walls mark the boundary for where God's presence, his intimate, glorious temple presence dwells at the center of the life of his people. So Nehemiah is assessing the damage. He's going, man, the walls are broken down. And the other thing he hears is that the remnant is in shame. Their reputation is in tatters. And Nehemiah, this is breaking his heart. It's grieving him. The the remnant is in shame. This speaks to, again, the nation's kind of laughing and going, look at their their God, their house, their city, their their whole thing. It's, It's in shambles. And another aspect of the remnant being in shame is that this is actually what God himself promised he would do if they walked in their wicked ways, right? So the language that Nehemiah uses here in Nehemiah 1, it comes from Deuteronomy. A lot of it's from Deuteronomy. And uh, he's using language that we find like in Deuteronomy 4, where God tells his people centuries earlier, before they're going into the land, God tells his people, hey, here's the thing. If you commit idolatry and injustice and you leave me, uh, you walk away from me and you, you kind of ruin the land, then I myself will come and I'll tear down the walls and I'll send you into exile. And Deuteronomy 4 verse 27 says, the Lord himself will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. So the bigger picture here is that God himself has actually deconstructed Jerusalem. Because God is a Rebuilder, but before God can rebuild, he's got to debuild, kind of pull down and tear down what has not been built on a good foundation so that he can build it up right again. God is going to reconstruct, but before God reconstructs his people, he has to deconstruct his people. And that means that in one sense, we could say God is a God of deconstruction. God actually deconstructs to get back to a good foundation so that he can reconstruct and build appropriately. Now, that may sound a little weird to us because we hear the word deconstruction today and we think of that as, as always a bad thing. It's kind of the association that we have with it, right? Um, but not necessarily because there are really two kinds of deconstruction. And how we assess the damage, uh, it's important which kind of deconstruction we use, right? And so I think you could say one type of deconstruction for assessing the damage is like the serpent's question in the garden. Did God really say The other kind of deconstruction that is a healthy, godly, Christ-like one is we find in the words of Jesus who says, you have heard it said, but I say. I'm gonna try and unpack these for a second because I think how we assess the damage, which question we use to deconstruct and assess the damage of the bad stuff is important. Now, the serpent, when he says, did God really say, his goal, this is in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, he's talking to Adam and Eve, and his goal as he is doing this, he wants to poison their relationship with God. He wants to sow suspicion in their heart and in your heart to actually break trust. Is God really good? Can I actually rely on him? Can I really trust him? Satan's goal is ultimately to alienate us from God. The enemy wants to sow division and mistrust and break your relationship with God, a deconstruction that causes you to tear down your faith and turn and walk away and never come back. With Jesus, however, we see a different kind of deconstruction. Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say. 
And when he says, you have heard it said, he is helping assess the damage. He's not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about some of the traditions and uh, impulses and practices and teaching of his people that have been kind of added on and conglomerated onto it that are not truly a reflection of God's heart. That's important to get this because when he said, sometimes you hear people say, oh, you have heard it said, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's not talking about the Old Testament. Jesus loves the Old Testament. Jesus is always saying like the Hebrew Bible, like he's always saying things like, it is written, it is written, it is written. So I was asking like, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Jesus says, I came not to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus has a very high view of the Hebrew Bible. He is, dude, he's got his Hebrew Bible with like post-it notes and lines in the margin and highlight markers. Like, Like Jesus loves his Hebrew Bible. When he says, you've heard it said, he's not saying that, but what he is doing, he is assessing the damage that some of the reputation, some of the practices and the teaching of God's people have wrapped around it that doesn't accurately reflect God's heart. And Jesus helps us assess the damage by saying, you've heard it said, but that ain't really true. That's not really God. That's not really here. And I've come to actually declutter and pull and deconstruct and pull those things apart and assess that damage in order that we can reconstruct and rebuild when I say, but I say, you've heard it said, but Jesus says. You've heard it said, deconstruction, but Jesus says, reconstruction. You've heard it said, Jesus pulling down, but Jesus says, and you can build your life up upon this foundation of what Jesus says. Now, what this means for us is that you and I, Redemption Tempe, in this season, nationally, where we're all at, we need Jesus to help us assess the damage. We need Jesus to point out the things that Jesus is going, you've heard it said, but that ain't actually of me. You've heard it said, but I'm actually pointing you to a different way. I wanna actually call you into this. Jesus, we need you, even now, Holy Spirit, illuminate our eyes, our experience as your people to see and understand and know your heart, Jesus. We need Jesus to help us assess where things have been built on a wrong foundation apart from his word. Uh, and now again, I'm uh, thinking more nationally here. So we look locally, I am super grateful. I feel like, man, I just am blown away by your faithfulness, like getting to be a part of a church family where I feel like you guys walk faithfully with God in the ways that you show up in, in this last season of just being with each other and for one another. I feel like we've got a strong foundation that Jesus has been building here. But there is this reality as look kind of more broadly nationally, I would say two, two themes come to mind in my mind that I feel like the last decade, I've seen God really assessing the damage caused by pride and by abuse in the church as a whole. Uh, one by pride. I look back over the last decade, it feels like God has been knocking down leaders like dominoes across the nation who have built ministries, reputations, often from a backdrop of pride or of arrogance or of domineering and all, all those kind of things that don't reflect the humility that Christ says is his foundation for his church to be built upon, right? And one of the things I just want to give a shout out that I've just loved here has been, getting to do ministry together with Jim Mullins, one of our co-lead pastor here, one of our lead pastors here at Redemption. The guy just embodies humility. I feel like in a world where so many are trying to just get the spotlight and the stage, the public, like to build whatever kind of thing, and his humility and serving and walking faithfully in our lives and our cultivating the life of Christ, helping shepherd that in our life as a community. I am. For one, I'm super grateful for Jim Mullins and embodying that. And we wanna be a community as redemption that is built on humility, not on pride and whatever, but on actually a humble serving and caring for one another. Another piece of damage that I believe Jesus 
has been assessing and exposing and deconstructing and pulling out has been the reality of abuse in the church. Uh, nationally, uh, there, there was a sense for like a decade ago, I think many of us were kind of going like, man, it's, it's horrible to see what's happening in the Catholic church, the sex abuse scandals, those kind of things. And that's really horrible. I'm, I'm glad that's not us. And the reality is if you've been paying attention over the last decade or more, the report has been coming out and there is a report of a church in ruins. And the reality that nationally things are not much better. All right, things are as bad, if, if not worse. Well, and we have seen attempts at times to cover up by people, not here at Redemption, Redemption, but generally you've seen reports at large of people trying to cover up and to protect their power. And often there's a sense of people's motives of going, we've got to protect this from getting assessed or exposed or dealt with so that we can protect God's reputation for his church. And God's going, that's not how it works, right? Because Jesus is a truth teller. And so Jesus is going, man, I care more about the integrity of the foundation that my church is built upon. And so if you've been building it on this way and it's leaning and it's flopping and it's gonna fall over, I actually wanna expose that and deconstruct that and reveal that so that we can build it back up on a proper foundation. God is not afraid of that kind of deconstruction. God is that kind of deconstructor. But he does it in order to help us rebuild on a healthy and proper foundation. So one of the questions I have for you this morning, though, is in your own life, in your own history, in your own walk with Jesus, to maybe assess some of the damage in your own life. Where have Christians hurt you? Perhaps words they spoke that tore you down at a time where you really needed to be built up. Maybe they weren't there for you at a moment when they should have been. You really needed them to be there with you. If we're going to heal, we got to first assess damage and name it, recognize it. Maybe on the flip side, where have you hurt others? Like as an ambassador for Jesus, someone who bears his name as his follower, where have you let others down? Maybe spoken those words. Where have you been a part of the reputation of Jesus' people being in shambles? We don't need to hide or ignore or stick our head in the sand about those things. We can face them and we can own them because Jesus cares about telling the truth and assessing the damage. Another question I have for others is maybe where have Christians taught you things about God that are not necessarily really true? Are there some things you've learned about God? Maybe growing up in the church where Jesus wants to go, yeah, you heard it said that, but actually I say this. I've had a, doing one of the book clubs we've got going and one's coming up on uh, one of my books called The Skeletons of God's Closet that's starting uh, tonight. But a number of folks have been coming up this last week or two who've been reading it going, man, I feel like I grew up and I, I, I was taught, I was like, this is this, but then I'm, it's helping point to the Bible and going, but Jesus says this, this, and this. And I believe that there may be some unhealthy things some of us have absorbed or grown up in or had people say to us that Jesus actually wants to deconstruct in order that he can reconstruct us on a good foundation, the authority of his word, the reliability of God's character. Because the reality is this, when you have this mix of bad experiences with Christians and bad teaching from Christians, it's prime territory for the enemy to go, did God really say? Is the church really worth your time? Is Jesus really a thing? And what we need is Jesus' kind of deconstruction where he steps in and he wants to say, hey, 
Your pastor growing up said this, but I say this. Your Christian friends, they did this, but I do things this way. These people that you know have been this to you, but Jesus says, I'm gonna be this to you. We need to be reconstructed on the word and the presence of Christ. All right, well, how does Nehemiah respond? Once this damage is assessed, how does he respond to it? Let's pick up in verse four. Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I... He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah shows us here that the second step to rebuilding a church in ruins is that we have to confess our sin. We have to confess our sin. Nehemiah here, it says that he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. And it strikes me when it says that he wept and he mourned, that Nehemiah's response was one of sadness. And it's interesting to me because Nehemiah is not actually experiencing the fallout firsthand, right? Like he's up in the palace, he's in Susa, he's in the Citadel, he's got the cush job. He's like, he's living high and free. Like he's, he's actually in a pretty good spot personally. And yet he recognizes that God's people, their reputation and their city and all is in shambles. And his response is to weep, sadness. It also strikes me that he responds by fasting and praying. And here's something interesting. Scholars would say there's a gap between Nehemiah 1 and Nehemiah 2, between chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's a gap of about four months. And so what this means is that Nehemiah doesn't hear the report, get angry, cry a few tears, and then go to action. Like he actually takes time to grieve. He takes time to seek God. He takes time to pray. He doesn't fire off the quick social media rant or whatever else. He goes, no, God, I'm gonna seek you. I'm gonna pour out my heart to you. I'm gonna try and connect my heart with yours, God. The things that break your heart, I want to break mine. And he weeps and he mourns, and he fasts and he prays, seeking God in this scenario. This is... One of the reasons why we do uh, prayer and action groups here, where part of the ethos and the mindset has been, man, issues that we care about in, in our society. We've got groups in things like uh, with criminal justice reform, others with things like uh, sanctity of life. And the goal has been, hey, we actually want to commit to a year where we're going to pray intentionally together as a group. We're going to learn more and seek to understand and humble ourselves and really gain a better understanding of the issues involved. And we're going to seek you, God, and going, what is constructive action here in our city, here locally, that we could actually take? But it's cultivating a posture of rather than just the hot take, we want the slow take to be a people who actually get our hands in the dirt and pray and seek God and go, God, we want to actually do action that's saturated in the presence and the power of your spirit. Well, in verse six, Nehemiah says this too. He says, even I, 
in my father's house have sinned. And this is crazy to me. Nehemiah includes himself in this, but the reality is he wasn't alive when these things happened. He was not even alive when uh, the people went into exile. He has grown up in exile. And so the sins that caused Jerusalem to be torn down and the walls to be burned and the reputation to be in shambles, like he wasn't even around then. And all that stuff's happened. And now he's looking back a generation later and yet he identifies himself with it. He says, even I am my father's house. He doesn't just confess their sin, he confesses our sin. He includes himself in the corporate identity of his people. Now, this raises a difficult question that many people are asking today. This question is, is it okay to identify with or even to confess sins that I didn't personally commit? And here's uh, what I think we see here and that we need to kind of hold together, that it's a both end rather than an either or, right? And the both end is going, the Bible talks both about our uh, personal responsibility and it talks about our corporate identity. And so there's this reality that at the end of the day, before the judgment seat of God, you're gonna be held accountable for uh, your sins, not your parents' sins and all that, right? So there is that reality in one sense, but then there's also another sense that we see throughout scripture that we are with our people and from our people and should be for our people. And we have a corporate identity that is bound up in Adam and with our family and with our tribe and with our nation, with our civilization, that there is a corporate identity that lays claim on us. And here's the crazy thing is that The reality of the gospel means like, if this isn't true, then your salvation doesn't work. Because Jesus, even though he was not personally responsible for your sin, he identified publicly with you. He wasn't personally responsible. He didn't do it, right? And yet Jesus identified corporately with the sin of his people as the king of his kingdom He said, I'm actually going to identify with the sin of my people to the point that I'm going to let it pound the nails into my hand to the point that I'm going to let it bury my body in the grave so that in my union with my people in their death, they might be united with me in my life. If corporate identification doesn't work, then you and I are still stuck in our sins. But Jesus identified with his people, love for them. Nehemiah identified with his people love for them. And the gospel, I believe it moves us from me to we, right? From recognizing that we have an identity. And in particular here, we're talking about with the family of God, with the church, that you and I, it's not just stuff that those Christians have done. It's stuff that we, the church have done. And we need like Nehemiah to identify with our people, to identify with the church. And my question for you this morning is this, Are you moved to sadness by the sins of the church? Are you moved to weeping, to tears? Are you moved to sadness by the sins of the church? You know, one of my kids, uh, one of my sons, he has some uh, trouble with uh, emotional regulation. So uh, we're trying this new medication with him. Meds, he... um, he has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder from uh, exposure in, in the womb to alcohol and drugs. He's, um, he's adopted. And so we've been working, we tried medicine some years ago and it just felt like it was shutting down his personality. So we said, we don't, we don't want to do that. Uh, but now years later, working with his doctor, so we're going to give another try. And one of the things that's really been amazing and rad just about the, this medicine this season is it's felt like rather than shutting down his personality, it's actually been bringing out more of his personality. 
And one of the things that we've seen with this, as an example, a few weeks ago, we were watching Star Wars. We're kind of going through the Star Wars trilogy. And we get to Return of the Jedi. And it gets to the scene where Darth Vader's mask comes off and Luke and, you know, it's, it's I am your father. And it's, it's Luke and Darth Vader, who's actually his dad, are having this conversation. And, and we look over and we see that our son is sobbing. And we realize he's been asking a lot of questions lately about his dad. We don't know who he is, where he is. And so he's asking these questions about his, his dad. And, um, and we can see him identifying here with Luke, who, uh, Luke, who is, he, he loves his father, and yet there's this evil in his father, and yet they're still connected because it's his dad. And he's, he, he, he's, he's bonding and connecting with that moment. And here was the bigger thing was Han and I were like, I don't know that we've ever seen him cry. <sighs> Especially not like that, you know? His only emotion for so long, it seems, has been anger. Like, he's angry so easy. We'll get riled up and get angry and all. Uh, but now, it's like do this helping him connect to the sadness beneath his anger. And I'm convinced that some of you are angry at the church because you haven't yet processed your sadness at the church, right? There are some of us here who we, we've got anger at the church. We've got church hurt. We've got wounds, whatever, from experiences growing up, from things that people have said or done. And we've got that, that anger that's kind of out there on the surface. And yet what we need is the medicine of the spirit to help us go deeper and to bring out this fuller part of our personality that allows us to experience the sadness the tears, the weeping, the lament, the grief, like Nehemiah did. They say that anger is a bodyguard for sadness, right? There's a sense that uh, anger is not so really bad. I mean, I, I get angry about things that are, are wrong in the world and wrong in, in the church at large, whatever else. Um, and yet uh, there's a sense that often what our anger can do is it can be like this bodyguard that's trying to protect us from experiencing the, the, the pain or the sadness connected to what we've experienced. And with our anger, it can become a lot easier to rant about the church or to uh, just vent or go off on some friends who maybe aren't as in a cynical place as we are, or it can cause us to kind of simmer in our own, in our own kind of little circle. But one of the issues is that we haven't yet dealt with our sadness. And again, the challenge is if all you've got is anger, you can even, there can even be righteous anger, but all you got is anger, all that's going to allow you to do is to deconstruct. What your sadness allows you to do is connect it to the heart of God and to be able to name and assess the damage, but also create the soil where you can begin to reconstruct on the other side. It's just the beauty of the gospel is that the ground of renewal is watered with the tears of corporate confession. Like the ground of renewal and revival is watered with the tears of corporate confession. Where we as the people of God go, we're not hiding or ignoring or pretending that the stuff ain't there, God. We want to assess the damage and we want to grieve before you. We want to confess our sin. We want to own it, not just what they've done, but what I've done and what we've done. God, we want to own it before you and let the tears fall to prepare the soil. That our tears would prepare the soil where the, the walls have been burned down begin to smother the flames where the, the ground is parched and where the reputation is in shambles and it seems like nothing good could grow there. 
that through the tears of our confession and our repentance, the ground will be prepared for a fresh move of God. The reality is not only for the church at large, but even for us, you don't experience the healing unless you experience the hurt. And so I want to uh, challenge you this week that I want to challenge you if you would take time, take space, uh, maybe it's one meal, maybe it's a day, but take time this week to, to fast and to pray. Nehemiah, feel free to pull out your phone if you want to right now and put it in your calendar, like wherever. But again, maybe it's one meal, maybe it's one day, maybe it's a week. You don't have to go like Nehemiah in four months, right? <laughs> but the goal is meant for us as a people to go, let's create some space to assess the damage and to grieve it before God and to confess the sin of the church before Jesus as his people. Now, for some of you, that might be personal, right? It might be some ways that Christians have hurt you in the past. It might be something, God, and I want to encourage you to create some space this week to grieve that before God. Actually name it and bring it before him in prayer and call out to him. For others of you, maybe you don't have that, uh, but maybe it's more the things that you see, whatever that first thing is, the spirit kind of pricks your heart with as you see nationally or, or globally or things that you've seen in the church that break your heart. I want to challenge you this week to create some space to fast and to pray and to weep and confess and bring it before God. It's people. Because the beauty of the gospel is that when God's people humble themselves, seek him and pray and own rather than avoid and ignore the damage, God has promised to move. See that here in the next final part of our Nehemiah passage today in verse eight. Where Nehemiah banks on this, he calls out in verse eight to God saying, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer of the king. Well, Nehemiah shows us here that the third step to rebuilding a church in ruins is to look to God. We assess the damage, we confess our sin, but then we look to God and his power. Nehemiah says here, uh, remember God and restore. Like remember your promise, God, and restore your people. Remember, restore. Remember, restore. Remember your covenant, your promise, and restore us, God, as your people. Nehemiah looks back in order to look forward. He looks back to the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and who God has been to look forward with confidence to who God will be and what he will do and that God will be faithful to his promise. And he sees here that God says, if you confess your sin, if you own it and you seek me, that I will return you, I will restore you, I will rebuild you. Nehemiah looks back to look forward. He quotes here from Deuteronomy once more. And uh, we see here echoes from quoting from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, where God gives this promise, essentially saying, hey, when all these bad things happen to you, when you turn to idols and injustice and you get driven out of the land, when all these things bad happen to you, if you turn and seek me again and seek my face, it says, when you do that, Deuteronomy 30 says, um, 
When you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice, I wanna read this, I think this is powerful. He says, uh, in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your father. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live." Nehemiah looks back at this. He says, God, you promised. I want to be a rebuilder. I'm banking my chips on your promise. But if we assess the damage, we confess our sin, and we turn and we seek you, that you will be faithful to restore and to rebuild us as the people of God. He not only looks back, he also looks up. His title for God in this prayer, he says, is uh, the God of heaven. And that is the most frequent title for God in the book of Nehemiah is the God of heaven. And there's a sense that um, Nehemiah is going, God, I get that you're bigger than kind of the podunk gods of the nations where we're scattered right now. You are the God who reigns from heaven over all of the earth. You are the God who is above them all. It speaks to God's sovereignty being his rule and his reign from heaven over all of the earth. So Nehemiah not only looks back to God's promises, he looks up to God's sovereignty. And then he's able to look forward with confidence going, God, we can rebuild, not because of our resume, but because of your power. Not because of how great we are, but because of how great you are and because of your promise to restore and rebuild us as your people. Things I love here about Nehemiah is just saying, God, we need the whole God with the whole covenant that's found in the whole Bible. He's looking back to Deuteronomy. He's looking back to the whole thing. And Deuteronomy's talking about when you return to all the commands, all the things like me, Nehemiah's going, I need the whole God, not just the part of the God. I need the whole God. I need the God with the whole covenant, not just the part about the curses, but the part about the blessings and the restoration. I need the whole covenant that's in the whole Bible, not just where I'm at here, but back in Deuteronomy, I need the whole God of the whole covenant of the whole Bible. And here's the thing. If we're gonna be rebuilders, we need the whole God of the whole covenant of the whole Bible. We need the whole story and the God it points to and the God who is the God of the Bible. <laughs> we don't need edited Bibles. No. And the reality is the church has a bad history and track record at times of editing our Bibles. There've been some famous examples of this. Thomas Jefferson, you may have heard, he uh, liked to take scissors and cut out parts of the Bible he didn't like. <laughs> he didn't like the supernatural and the miracles. He was a child of the enlightenment who believed it's all about just reason and rationality and that's just ancient superstition. So I'm gonna... Cut it out, snip and gone, right? Uh, now, Jefferson wasn't the only one. There was also uh, what have been infamously called the slave Bibles, where slaveholders who wanted to perpetuate and protect the institution of slavery had what they called slave Bibles, where they would cut out the entire book of Exodus and commands and passages and things that related to and talked about like the freedom of slaves. Now they kept the other parts because they wanted their slaves to hear things about like working hard and the hope of heaven and things like that. But they didn't want the parts that talked about transformation now or God's heartbeat and, and, and called his people to be a people of liberation and freedom. And the danger here is I, I love the way a buddy of mine, A.J. Swoboda, he puts this in his um, book, After Doubt. He says, the reality is that slaves needed the whole Bible, not parts. 
So did slave owners. They needed to be confronted by God uh, the way that Pharaoh was confronted by God. He goes on and says, the real tool of oppression isn't the Bible. It's a deconstructed, redacted, edited Bible. The institution of slavery didn't end because people stopped reading the Bible. It started to end because people finally started reading the whole Bible and taking it seriously. The Bible isn't the problem. We are the problem. Augustine, the ancient church father, says similarly that if we take the parts that we like about the gospel and we reject the parts that we don't like, then it's not really the gospel we like, it's ourselves. And there's a reality, to be rebuilders, we need the whole Bible and at redemption, we want to look to the whole God of the whole Bible as the one that we are seeking to rebuild the identity of the church in this age, this moment that we're in. That's what we're we're looking to. And yet there are the realities that maybe you don't take a pair of scissors and actually snip, snip, cut them out, whatever, right? But in our hearts, we can kind of take a pair of scissors and cut them out, right? And there's a danger because we end up losing the power that is at work with the whole God of the whole Bible. And so the reality is you have a slaveholder's Bible if you cut out the parts about sexuality because you think it makes God looks prudish and you just want to kind of have your fun and whatever, right? You have a slaveholder's Bible if you cut out all the talk about justice that's threaded throughout the Bible because you're concerned that, oh man, those parts are going to make people think I hold a CRT or something, right? Like that is a slaveholder's Bible. You're editing and cutting it out to protect something else. You have a slaveholder's Bible if you cut out or ignore the parts about the unborn and God's concern for all of life. You have a slaveholder's Bible if you cut out the repeated references throughout to God's heartbeat and concern for the poor and the immigrant and the refugee and those who are vulnerable in your society that we as the church would actually be able to embrace and walk with and care for. You have a Jefferson Bible if you cut out all the stuff about the supernatural and the Holy Spirit and miracles and things like that, right? showing that maybe our real God is God of reason, enlightenment, rationality, rather than the whole God of the whole Bible. You have a slaveholder's Bible if you cut out the parts about forgiveness, because God, you don't know what they really did. Yes, he does. And we have slaveholder's Bible if we abide by this sacred secular divide that says, God, you can have Sundays, you can have my personal life, you can have my stuff over here, but all the rest, this is kind of neutral territory. This is stuff out there and you're going, no, it's the whole God of the whole Bible of the whole earth, the God of heaven who lays claim to everything going, all of life is all for Jesus. Every square inch of creation, all that we do, how we live, redemption. We are gonna be a people who are rebuilding upon the promises of the whole God of the whole Bible. Christ himself, he is the eternal word through whom the written word was spoken that gives us access to knowing more word and spirit. It's his word and it's his presence that gives us access to knowing and walking with and experiencing life together with him as his people. So that's what we're going to rebuild upon. That is our foundation. And as we do, the beauty is that Christ has given this promise to us as his church. He says, upon this rock, upon his identity, upon who he is, upon this rock, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Nothing will be able to stand against the reality and the power of Christ's church, his kingdom, his spirit. And he's given us the keys of authority to that kingdom that he says, you, got, you have power to, to bind and to loose and to actually proclaim the truth of the gospel. And so this morning, Jesus, we need you to build your church. 
We need you to build us as your church, to build us up as your people through your word and through your spirit. We wanna be a people, God, who can assess the damage and not ignore it, not pretend it, it's not there, not stick our head in the sand. We wanna be a people who, God, can confess our sin, not just what I've done, but what we've done, can own and acknowledge it and weep and lament and seek you. And God, just wanna be a people who look to you, the God of our salvation who has promised upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. Jesus' kingdom will have the victory in the end. As we come to communion, we come to Jesus, our rebuilder. Uh, Jesus is a greater Nehemiah As we come to this bread and this wine, Jesus is a greater Nehemiah who stood not in the citadel of Susa, but citadel of heaven, the tower of heaven, who was there and he heard the report that came of the ruin of his people. The walls had been crumbled down and the gates had been burned and our reputation was in shambles. Jesus heard the report And rather than shrinking back, rather than saying, not my problem, no, Jesus did not stay far off, but he identified with us. He drew close to us. He wept and grieved with us over our sin and the impact it's had on the world. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane so much that blood came from his pores. He wept and he bore reality. He allowed himself, Jesus allowed himself to be deconstructed on the cross the temple of his body torn down brick by brick so that you and I could be rebuilt solid and strong and secure in him. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. I would invite you to receive the bread as a sign of his body given for you, broken for you. You may receive bread. Now I invite you to receive the wine or the juice, a sign of his blood shed for you. You may receive the wine. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you. You are our great rebuilder. God, you who allowed yourself to be constructed, deconstructed in order that we might be rebuilt together in you. So Jesus, we want to join you. We want to be a people who participate with you and partner with you as you build your church. And so Jesus, I pray this morning uh, that we'd be able to first assess the damage. That Holy Spirit, if there are areas in anyone's life right now where maybe there's hurt from the past, maybe there's things that they are carrying, maybe there's things that they've been taught, Holy Spirit, would you minister to them now that we might be able to hear you speak to them. You've heard it said, but I say, to say, but Jesus, what do you say? I want to look to you and listen to your word. God, we also want to be a people who confess our sin. Lord, not just what I've done, but what we've done, not just what they've done, but what we have done, God, that we would identify with your people. God, that we would allow our hearts to be moved. God, I want to pray particularly for those right now who are angry. God, maybe it's even a justified anger but it's been holding them back. 
God, it's given them the ability to deconstruct and to tear down, but not to rebuild and be a part of experiencing you with them in their sadness, God. Would you Holy Spirit, be the medicine that takes them deeper into their sadness. Some space even now, this week, to grieve, to bring it before you. Amen. And God, we do want to be uh, people who look to you. We do look to you, Jesus. We're banking our lives on your promises. God, that as bad as we may ever get, <laughs> you are committed to us. and You are a God who remembers and restores. So we look to you, the God of heaven, and we say it's not by our resume, God, it's by your power. It's not by what we can do, God. It's not by how great we are. It's by how great you are. And we ask you, Jesus, to build your church. Build it in us, build it with us, build it through us. May we, through the power of your spirit, get to participate with you with all the gifts and the abilities and things you've given that we participate with you in building your church upon the strong, solid foundation that shall never fail. Christ, you are chief cornerstone. It's in your name, Jesus, and for your glory that we pray. Amen.